0: I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, I spoke to my colleague at the Financial Post, reporter Stephanie Hughes, about the demise of the penny in Canada. Almost a decade has passed since the last penny was pressed in Canada, and somewhat suddenly there's a lot of talk about taking all cash out of circulation amid the rise of many new digital forms of payment. Hughes has done a lot of reporting on what this means for Canada, including interviews with Carolyn Rogers, Senior Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada, and Timothy Lane, a Deputy Governor. There were billions of pennies floating around in people's wallets not too long ago, and Hughes told me the Bank of Canada has learned a lot from its efforts to remove them all from circulation. That insight is proving valuable as more and more people choose to switch away from cash and use some form of digital payment. Stay tuned after my conversation with Hughes for a past interview I conducted with University of Toronto professor Andreas Park who co-authored a design proposal for a digital currency for the Bank of Canada. As always, the interviews were edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on down to business to talk to me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Gabe.
0: I've read your recent story on the demise of the penny, and there's so much talk today of eliminating hard cash, you know, moving to some form of digital payment. As you wrote recently, it's been about a decade since Canada pressed its last penny in 2012. Have we learned anything from the penny's demise?
1: I really think we learned quite a few things, actually, from the penny's demise. I think it really taught us about our shifting relationship towards coins and uh, eroding uh, purchasing power, uh, sort of rendering these coins obsolete, uh, at least for pennies. As time goes on, uh, many people from the Mint to the Bank of Canada are seeing the shift towards digital payments. But We also have to keep in mind that it's very demographically driven. So in order to not leave anyone behind, the Mint is still trying to kind of provide as many currencies to where they need to go as much as possible. So the Death of the Penny has also kind of painted this picture of how the most fractional currency went from being a wallet mainstay to this kind of a nuisance coin over the past few decades. I remember when the penny was taken out of uh, circulation, I think it was in high school at the time. Um remember the reaction from people being mostly, oh, just thank God we finally don't have to carry these annoying coins around anymore. But some people were kind of nostalgic and some people uh, kind of felt sad for the death of the penny. So I think it could also just speak to where we're headed with money, where um, more people are shifting towards uh, digital payments, but not everybody is there yet.
0: Yeah. And I want to ask you more about that demographic shift. Were there clear lines about who keeps using cash? And I think most people see it as just a young versus old thing.
1: For sure. Well, that's what the uh, the Mint survey has been sort of finding um, of search. And it's what the president and CEO of the uh, Royal Mint, uh, Marie LeMay, walked me through. Uh, people from different ages, ge- uh, geographies, income levels, and there's a lot of other factors kind of informing their relationship to cash. And just All these different demographics show how they approach cash differently and who's more likely to hold on to cash and who's more likely to really just jump into digital payments. So, for example, a young person living in a big city will probably more likely use digital payments where there's more options paid digitally available. And they grew up at a time where digital payments were accessible to them than previous generations. And previous generations, of course, probably being more of a holdout to actually use cash. But then even in that demographic, you're seeing kind of a shift there. So, and definitely more of a geographic sense, where uh, people in rural areas, there's likely more of an inclination to use hard currencies, cash, coin, what have you on um, that. And th- these are sort of the things that uh, these surveys from the Mint were finding.
0: Yeah. So interesting that there's a rural urban divide. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, the young old people probably know about. I was also struck by, you know, the fact that removing the penny in retrospect, it feels so trivial. But in reading your story, they kind of realized it wasn't at all like a trivial undertaking and was in fact sort of gargantuan in a way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And when I was speaking with um, some of the experts at the uh, the Canadian coin um, circulation experts, it really certainly wasn't a matter of just reversing circulation flows. There were armored trucks, there are uh, financial institutions to coordinate with. There was this interesting uh, kind of sidebar that they walked me through where the copper had to actually be Extracted from the coins. So uh, huh. when you had pennies that were just pure copper coins, that was a bit more of an easier process. But it got more challenging when, um, since 1997, a lot of these pennies were either copper-plated zinc and steel coins. Wow. That they had to actually like separate the metals from. There's this whole process with a conveyor belt and a metal uh, magnet to extract the, the steel. But with zinc, it had to be done through a machine that kind of um, separated by density, and then everything was kind of stored. So. Yeah. And you know what? It's so funny because despite all this, despite this whole orchestra that went into or that they kind of described here, uh, you know, uh, Marie LeMay said it was a smooth process because of this network in place and because um, this network is so essential to track where the demand for these hard currencies really um, kind of remain nowadays and where the flow of currencies should go. As much as it sounded like a headache, uh, they said after they ironed out the details, they were able to pull the coin to circulation. But yeah, it was absolutely not a trivial act. Um, It was something that taught the Mint quite a bit about the demand for currencies.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And and another thing was in the article, you focus on the history of the dot penny. Mm -hmm. It's a historical episode about a 1936 penny. I was wondering what drew you to this episode and what what you found interesting about this story.
1: For sure. Yeah, it, would. it definitely struck me because I'm a bit of a history dork. But to qu- quickly uh, summarize here, it's the dog penny is a collector penny from 1936 when Edward VIII abdicated the throne. And Canadian coin makers at the time were just scrambling to make a new royal design for the 1937 coin. However, the design for Edward VIII and George VI hadn't been finished yet. So designers went with the likeness of George V to um, his likeness to avoid a production gap. The only distinguishing feature on this coin would be a small dot under the date, hence the dot penny. So because there was an overproduction of these pennies, and I I suppose they were no longer needed, most were melted down due to the overproduction. But few would end up surviving at the end, and they would, for lack of a better expression, fetch a pretty penny. So one sold for $400,000 at auction back in 2010.
0: Wow. Wow. Fascinating how hard cash takes on that sort of value in the way that I guess I'm more likely to associate with like some kind of digital token like Bitcoin or something. So I, I was thinking about this because a lot of this is coming up because of crypto, but also because of the pandemic. I remember reading at one point in the last few years, early on, say in 2020, that cash was considered a possible point of transmission for the COVID-19 virus. And I remember that a lot of the corner stores in my neighborhood for a short period weren't even accepting cash. And so I guess I'm wondering if that's what's driving the Bank of Canada and a lot of the discussion around eliminating cash.
1: I think a lot of those discussions are coming from broader trends in general, but there's definitely um, an acceleration um, towards digital payments and e-commerce during the pandemic that I think informed some of these decisions. I know Timothy Lane um, had a speech uh, last year kind of speaking uh, more in depth on that. But one thing I would note is that there was a moment during the last two years and the sort of narrative taking hold that the pandemic would absolutely kill cash, but that hasn't quite been the case Granted, more people shifted to e-commerce solutions or paid with credit, as to your point. Some stores were just not accepting cash at point. However, the Mint had a survey that uh, found that 8 out of 10 Canadians would still keep using cash. And also, interestingly enough, there was an RBC report that came out just a week after we published this feature, finding that Canadians were still leaning towards cash, but it was mostly just to hold and stash away, particularly in a time of crisis, rather than to transact with. So... There was still that demand for cash. Uh, The Mint surveys, at least for now, are still seeing that demand expected to take hold after the pandemic completely fully subsides. And yeah, I think there's still people who are holdouts there. I do think we'll still see people lean towards the convenience of digital payments. There's going to be a long-standing demographic and cohort that kind of hold cash to heart, but I, I think with the this overall trend moving towards digital payments, it, it's why uh, or the central bank is looking at CBDCs or central bank digital currencies that would allow Canadians to transact with digital currencies issued by the bank.
0: Yeah, and maybe just a follow-up mm-hmm. to that in in your discussions with Bank of Canada. And in your reporting, do you have a sense of how seriously the Bank of Canada is taking the idea of developing its own digital currency and what kind of a timeline they might be thinking of?
1: For sure. Well, they've absolutely been doing uh, quite a bit of research and quite a bit of work to um, look into this idea of a digital loony. I don't know how much, uh, how far they've gotten um, at this point as far as timelines go, but it's something that Timothy Lane is certainly looking at. Early in May, when we spoke with Carolyn Rogers, she was echoing this this sentiment about uh, shifting towards digital payments, largely saying uh, she could foresee a future where there is only digital currency that's possible there ought to be, in that, in that case, a digital Canadian dollar. So that's what the central bank is kind of working on. So it was good to get that color from for the, the top executives from Bank of Canada. But it's definitely something that they've had an eye on for a while. It's something that they're, they keep looking at. And um, the, I suppose they're uh, planning on developing their own models to kind of meet this demand that Canadians are showing that they have an inclination for.
0: Such a cool topic. I'm looking forward to reading more of your stories on this, Stephanie, and just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to me about this.
1: Thank you so much and thank you for having me.
0: That was Stephanie Hughes, a reporter at The Financial Post. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Now stay tuned for my interview with Andreas Park, an economist and professor at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Andreas Park, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business today. Gabriel, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, It's a pleasure. So I want to talk about cryptocurrencies and central banks and the monetary supply. Uh, These are all pretty heady subjects by themselves. Uh, in combination i'm i'm not sure this maybe this is a a bad idea <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot to unpack that's true yes <laughs> yeah but basically we're going to have a conversation about the future of money and a lot of people understand that cryptocurrencies are convenient they're accessible they're a low cost way to move money around i've heard you say that in the low interest environment that we've been in for the past few decades Banks have shifted from making money off of interest to making money off of fees. There's a strong argument that cryptocurrencies could make the economy more efficient. So let's talk about cryptocurrencies as they currently exist. Maybe I should first explain
2: how a cryptocurrency works and how we should think about this, because I think it's important to understand that with the exception of Bitcoin, which is really just a digital sticker, the way to think of blockchain and cryptocurrencies is much broader than just money, right? So um, say the Ethereum network, which was essentially conceived in Toronto, Is really a financial infrastructure which allows you to move digital assets around. And that's the phenomenal idea because essentially most infrastructures that we have in finance are completely separate, right? So we have a payments network, but even there we have various different infrastructures that are running in parallel. We have stocks and bonds that are kept on different databases. And with a blockchain like Ethereum, you essentially could have all digital assets in one spot. And one spot sounds like it's a scary thing, but because it's distributed, it actually makes it much safer because the same data is kept on tens of thousands of different spots. So now there's a difference between a cryptocurrency, which is sort of to be thought of as the internal mechanism that rewards the maintenance of the network, such as the Ethereum network has its cryptocurrency Ether or ETH, um, and then digital representations of money. You know, there's a lot of people are mixing up various different items that have very different functionality. So cryptocurrencies alone are not a threat by itself to the monetary system unless they become so important and so ubiquitous in people's use that they are essentially replacing uh, the money that we normally use, the the Canadian dollar. But there is a different way. how uh, money could also be used and how these crypto networks could be used, which are so-called stable coins. Now, and stable coins are different, right? A stable coin is essentially is a digital representation of a normal currency like the Canadian dollar. Uh, for say for the US dollar, there is a few, like three big ones and together they account for already something on the order of 130 billion US dollars in circulation that are running on blockchains. And so there's, there's
0: a lot of problems that arise with that. I'll just summarize what you just said is basically there are cryptocurrencies, which people are transacting in. And then there are, you know, there are government currencies that are represented in digital form in some of these stable coins. Yeah, exactly. So, but if you're not using one of these, I mean, what kind of impacts are these having on the economy such that central banks now, like the Bank of Canada and a lot of other banks are thinking about wading into this area
2: Well, so I would think, and and this is, this is again, my thinking of how the space develops, is that central banks are not quite so concerned about cryptocurrencies themselves like Ethereum or Bitcoin. It's effectively way too small as a use case um, in the world that they would actually think that they need to take any policy action. I think stable coins in some form and in the various different forms that people are thinking about them, I think that's something where they are worried a little more. So a very simple example is, for instance, Facebook wants to build its own financial network. It's called the DM network. They would call it a blockchain. It's a private network, though, which would be run by probably like 20 to 30 major corporations, including Shopify, for instance. And so the money would circulate on that network. That would be a completely new payment system. And, you know, the Bank of Canada is in principle in charge of payment systems in Canada and has the ability to oversee them, to designate them as systemically important and therefore has the right to oversee them. So that's something which is a concern. And the bigger concern came out and that could be relating to a system like DM is that, you know, it most likely will be run on the US dollar. And if it's very successful. And people adopt it, including in Canada, it's very possible that we find, you know, what's called currency displacement, where people use, for instance, this digital money as opposed to the Canadian dollar. And that's a problem because then, you know, we lose our monetary sovereignty. The Bank of Canada loses the ability to have effective monetary policy and the like. And that's, you know, that's a concern for them. And now digital currencies that they could issue could be a solution for them.
0: Right. And so now you have all these banks studying this. Why is this different from the financial infrastructure that exists now where you have a bunch of big banks, maybe charging fees, but why is it fundamentally different for the economy for the central bank?
2: Well, so the first thing to know is that most of this is not directly affecting the average person, let's say, right? So there's, there's a lot of technicalities in the background that are important. But let me just say this, the system that we're using uh, is still from the early 1990s. Um, and functionally, we really have not changed the financial infrastructure conceptually for, you know, almost a century. If you want to, if you want to push it really hard, right? So all that we have now is a electronic version of what we been doing for a very long time. So let me give you one example. We have something in Canada, which is called the payments modernization initiative. That's. Sounds like something that you want to bring, you know, the Canadian Payments Network, Canadian payment systems into the you know 21st century. Well, this initiative has been going on for 10 years. We were promised a real-time payments network in 2019, then it was pushed to 2021, now 222, and I don't think it's a surprise when we don't get it next year either. Now, why is this important? So the speed of payments. Is so for, for most people don't understand what actually goes into it and why this matters. Simple example, right? You'd have overdrafts. You need overdraft protection because, you know, for some reason or another, you may overspend on any given day. That's largely a function of an extremely inefficient payment system. And, you know, in many cases, financial institutions actually taking advantage of that. So when I say banks create fees, you know, some of these fees are actually created because of the inefficiencies that they create themselves, right? Um so let you know, the, the meanest trick in the game is this. Is somebody, for instance, has say $120 on their bank account and they get 10 payments in a day, right? So they get one payment in for say $130, and then they get another nine payments in for five, six dollars when they buy something with their debit card. Now, Let's say they make the 130 the large payment at the very end. And with that payment, they would basically go into an overdraft and all the other ones would all be okay. What banks do is they take all these transactions and they reorder them in such a way as to maximize the fees. So what some banks do is they take the biggest payment first so that you would have to go into an overdraft and they charge a fee for every single transaction thereafter that you go into an overdraft. And that's how you basically maximize the fees. And and banks have worked that out. And it's one of the costs of being poor is that people who have little money, they basically get dinged with such fees. We've heard things like in the middle of the pandemic, that TD Bank increased the limit uh, that you need to have for, you know, the most standard account of having a minimum balance of $5,000 in the account in order to, you know, be exempt from fees. And if you drop below this at any point in time, you pay for every single transaction. So with that, they could create potentially hundreds of dollars worth of fees for an individual. And who has $5,000, right, in a a deposit account? The point is that the real-time payments is really, this is a really big deal. And but the problem with real-time payments is it's not because it's hard, right? It's not a hard problem to solve. Brazil did this in nine months. They built a real-time network. It's because once you have a real-time network in, a lot of the fees that you charge and a lot of the income that you create would go away. That's the problem. Right. I mean, in Canada, we have this, uh, I wouldn't call it absurd, but this internally contradictory mechanism where Payments Canada is owned by the banks, but is there to operate in the public interest. So that's a contradiction. Right. And then basically it's supposed to operate in the public's interest without having actually any impact on any input from the public. You know, it just is, it's, you know, the fact that we can't get this done is a problem.
0: So let's back up a second. You believe that. The Bank of Canada needs to move towards some sort of blockchain technology that's more flexible and convenient, secure. It protects the loonie from being displaced by a private foreign currency and is generally lower cost, right?
2: Uh, that's a really good question, actually. So, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds in some sense, right? Uh, so first and foremost, what I like to see, and I'm an economist, I like markets and what i would really like to see is that there would be a market for the best product out there right so so people can choose from it and the best technology wins if you want that that would be ideal i am not so fond of you know the government imposing a particular you know technology on the financial sector or on the general public by association and you know there's so many technological advances going on yeah, you know, and I think actually people in the central banks too struggle with the idea of should they really be the ones that pick a technology and then you know have everybody else build on it and how do you update their technology? What happens if something better comes along? This is this is a tricky question.
0: Right. You just mentioned there should be a competition, a marketplace. You know, and the best currency wins. Are we sort of entering a new era where? For 10 years, we'll use cryptocurrency A and then another product will emerge that's better and we'll all have to go over there. That, that sounds, that gives me anxiety just thinking about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, rightfully. So, and this is a tech problem to some degree, but I think the better way to think about it is you want to have a platform, which is generally expandable and usable for a very long time and that you can build on, you know, so nothing which is too constraining so you you don't need to update it all the time but the reality of course of technology is technology needs to be updated in some form or another right don't get me wrong right so i don't think that current blockchain technology is actually already there for the big stage that it can be widely used it's it's still in a very much of an experimental phase um but i think the important part for for thinking about a new digital type of money is you, you shouldn't think about just the item itself. You need to think of the broader use case and the, and the broader technology around it. And this is, I think, where blockchain is so important, right? Because blockchain is not the blockchains that we see, if, you know, ignoring Bitcoin because that can only do one thing, which is transfer Bitcoin from one address to another. But the, the, the bigger, the modern blockchains like Ethereum, Solana and the like their platforms for re- digital resource transfers so that we can move bigger parts of, of our uh, financial infrastructure using a single technology. And so with that comes not just the idea of you, you build a new technology and then you know financial institutions get to use it. It's actually that you build a new marketplace for a new type of financial service that new brands can develop. And you know there's some phenomenal ideas out there already in you know in the normal blockchain world which as i said is still at, at an experimental stage but things that work extremely phenomenally well and uh, that have great promise to reduce costs to increase functionality and the like this is the bigger question is we need to think not about just money we need to think of a platform which can do much more than just transfer money
0: and so do you think that the bank of canada would be better off trying to regulate or wading into this very fast moving and experimental, but but highly innovative new field. So I
2: like to think that there there are certain things that you need to keep an eye on. So for instance, the issue of stable coins. Uh, stable coins are issued usually by a private firm. They essentially take deposits. You need to make sure that there is a match between what these companies promise, which is that each dollar that they have digitally is backed by a dollar sitting in a bank account. So that you have to, you know, have to control in some form. But other than that, I would actually prefer to see uh, that we enable and that we encourage this kind of innovation. And then once we know where the cookie crumbles, how it actually works, then you can start about thinking about regulation, right? Because it makes no sense to impose regulatory constraints and oversight, which is unbelievably expensive on an ecosystem, which still needs to figure out what to do. And, you know, this is actually a real concern, right? Because there's so many different regulators, so many different offices. And in many cases, these regulatory offices also claim jurisdiction over the same thing that you basically have to deal with like five different regulators to do one thing. Um, so it's not just the Bank of Canada that could be relevant. In the US, actually, it's a total nightmare because for some activities, you literally would have to deal with every regulator. And you know, keep in mind also, these networks tend to be global by default, right? And so when something is global by default, you would have to deal essentially with 50 regulators in the world or more. Now, the responsible product uh, projects that try to actually work together with regulators, but at some point it has to be also rethinked by regulators of, you know, if regulator A has a given approval, do I really need, you know, them to f- fill out a form for me too? <laughs> so is that really
0: necessary? So what I hear you saying on some level is governments need to sit back and watch this for a while, study it, which is what Bank of Canada and others are doing, but that the threat that other economists, yourself probably too, have talked about is that as more and more people start to use them, maybe this currency gets hacked and everyone loses their money. And so there is a certain urgency. I've also heard other people say to the Bank of Canada, either getting in the game and making a currency. I don't know how they make it relevant exactly. Or at least regulating. Yeah, these. it's a fair point. I mean,
2: obviously, you know, uh, the the threat of loss, loss for investments for people who don't know what they're doing is is a real concern. the The part which I'm I'm having difficulty with is so I'm I'm looking at this ecosystem and I've spent a lot of time on it. And in many cases, I'm asking, you know, I I hear my colleagues actually surprisingly many economists say you have to regulate, you have to regulate it. But I. Honestly, often don't know what is it exactly that you have in mind? What would you here be regulating? What requirements would you have? Um, and, and what what goal do you accomplish with this, right? Because ultimately regulation means you set a put a set of rules down, but you know, oftentimes you don't actually know what the rules would have to be. I also think, you know, taking a step back, I think we should think of an economy and economic activity, you know, to to develop in its own way and to give an industry the ability to do also some form of self-regulation. Now, so just to give you an example, this ecosystem, for instance, is fraught with scams, right? That happens all the time. But there is also a particular movement in this ecosystem to, to try to identify scams. There are discussion boards about scams, and usually scams get detected in some form or another. So it's not like, People are totally helpless right? in, in the light of you, you never know what is a scam or it's not, not a scam. People are trying to figure out ways of how can we identify a scam and then try to talk about it. So what I'm trying to say is it's not clear to me that a, a government, a group of government lawyers is best situated to, to identify, you know, how to deal with this problem the
0: best way. Well. What we're really talking about is the future of money. And you've outlined some of the cases, of the benefits and the reasons why cryptocurrencies are gaining traction. But I wanted to ask you, what's your best prediction about the future and, and specifically the future of cash? Do you think it'll still be in use in a decade or, you know, 20 years from now?
2: Well, that's a you know, you mean real cash, physical cash? Um, I I think there is a space for that. And I think. This is where where we have to be really careful is about how people perceive you know the digital world as a whole. Because you see, the one thing which is really great about cash is that it's totally anonymous. I make my transaction, the other party knows nothing about me, they learn nothing about me other than I paid for them, and that's it. And that's okay. And I think privacy and privacy rights are incredibly important for our lives um because there's so many ways how you know you can use information about you and data and and abuse it and you know manipulate you and so on and so forth and i think especially when it comes to the discussions that we see around digital currencies I, I am i'm extremely concerned about um how this would play out in terms of you know protecting people's privacy and and the like so let me let me outline a few concerns so the current Rule of the land is that banks have to do what's referred to as AML and CFT checks, or so, you know they have to prevent money laundering and they have to combat the financing of terrorism, right? So you want to make sure that uh, you know the monetary system is not used for any of these purposes. So when we have a CBDC, the same rules have to apply.
0: And just to be clear, CBDC, central bank issued digital currency. That sounds almost like a cannabis product, but it's a central <laughs> yeah. bank issued digital currency. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's right.
2: Now. In practice, the reality is, in my opinion, is nobody knows actually how to detect money laundering with the CBDC. And so the only th- way this can work is that there is actually a continuous and constant systematic analysis of all payments that go into the system. Now, imagine, would you agree to your chat messages being uh, consistently and systematically analyzed for you know, any type of criminal activity? Probably not, right? Would you agree to your, your to internet search history consistently being analyzed for whether or not you're looking for illicit activities? Probably not, right? But would you agree to your money uh, transactions to be analyzed? Probably not then, right? Or at least I think there's a fair number of people who say, well, I'm not kind of feeling comfortable with this, but this is the reality of how it would work out. You know, in, in banking, there used to be an extremely high degree of privacy. But that has been eroded over the years because of money laundering and what's not, what not, right? For for good reasons, always with good motives. But you would actually have to bind your hands as a government, not to get into a state where everything that you do is being surveilled. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, if you talk to people about the, the possibility of having this uh, digital money, you can come up with any number of ways how people with the best of intentions say, Oh, wow, we can use this for social engineering. You can go and say, Hey, you know, kids that use the CBDCs, we can prevent them from eating too, from buying too much candy or, you know, big, big gulpy drinks, or we can prevent, um, you know, money that homeless people get, for instance, in welfare payments, you can only use them for groceries or for whatever, you know, whatever people think is socially acceptable. And then you can spin this further and say, Hey, how about we impose, you know, buy Canadian? Or how about you can only spend CBDCs for unionized firms? You can build so many restrictions in it and can dream them up. There's a real danger that people precisely, you know, try to restrict. Your ability, how to spend your money, which ultimately is is a is a big form of freedom and not just in a, you know, illicit versus non-illicit way. So the potential for abuse is huge. And unless a government binds their hands really tight from the beginning, you know, there's, you, you get a backlash potentially, right?
0: So it sounds like you're making the case for regulation, but I think you're just saying eventually we're going to need to, but it does seem like there is some urgency to it almost.
2: There is uh, there there is some there is a certain sense of you need to think really hard about privacy and privacy is not just in terms of how private companies can use your data but also how the government can use their data. As I said, right, you need to find a way how you restrict yourself and, from doing that. So you know who can who can access this data? How can it be used? When is it being destroyed? This is a necessity, and you know if there is a cost associated with it that, that we can't get everything we want, so be it. Right, but I think privacy has to be is, is like one of the highest rights that we
0: have. For sure. And so cash and banks creating digital currencies, best predictions you have for what will happen in the, to those two? Okay, let me make the following prediction. Okay. So the
2: blockchain ecosystem, as it is, will continue to develop. And as I said, you know, this is still at the experimental stage. So before this will really become a thing, will be another five to 10 years at least. It's going to develop in exciting ways. It's going to be used, uh, but it's going to develop in parallel. Private, private suppliers like uh, Facebook or whoever comes after will try to get into the market and build a alternative payment system. And what I imagine will happen is actually that these systems will become something like CBDCs as a service so that they, they build a system which then can be bought by central banks and they can run it. I'd be very skeptical actually if we see a CBDC uh, in Canada or anywhere else within the next five years. And if we do, I am not convinced that it will actually run on a network which will be leading to significant improvements in terms of financial operations.
0: You'd be surprised. Yeah, I'd be
2: surprised if we see it, actually. I know that there's a big push for it. The BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, sort of like the, the the group of which central banks get together, they they keep talking about it, and they're building an innovation center in Toronto for you know basically you know helping push the, this agenda forward over the next decade or so. But as I said, I'm I'm not convinced that we'll see CBDCs anytime soon. But we will see private digital money, and that will certainly enter our lives in many ways
0: and continue to grow. It sounds like. Andreas, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to me and share all your thoughts about this incredibly rich and complex topic. Well, thank you for having me, Gabriel. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guests, Stephanie Hughes, a reporter at The Financial Post, and Andreas Park, a professor at the University of Toronto. The original music on this show was composed and performed by Bryce Hall, who executive produces Down to Business, with web support and editing from Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.